Welcome to the LBCF podcast. Our vision is to learn to live and love like Jesus, where we live, work, and play. To find out more about our community, you can visit us at lbcf.org. We hope you are encouraged and challenged by this teaching from our community. Good morning, LBCF. As you know, um, we are in the beginning, uh, the second week actually, of our series on discernment. Ryan uh, started off last week uh, just with an amazing um, just uh, message on just paying attention to what the fear of God means and what it means in terms of how we live it out in, in love and compassion. As I was um, reflecting um, this week on discernment, um, you know, one of the things that came to mind is that this is really what the life of Jesus is about. He came into the world uh, to incarnate what God is, who God is, what God is like. Jesus, wherever he walked, was the intersection of heaven on earth. And, and that's really profound. That wherever Jesus went, heaven was there. And I'd like to ask us as a church to pay attention to that because I believe the space is that intersection. That if we allow ourselves to be aware that the Holy Spirit is here, that the Holy Spirit is moving in, in profound ways. Um, but sometimes, you know, the stuff of life crowd all of that away. You know, we get busy. Our minds are gravitating to the football game or, you know, just, just things that happened this week and... And we, we lose sight. And I know part of the way we enter into that, and I love Dan and the team just entering us into this, this worship and, and meditation on God and just centering. And, and so right now I'd like us to invite the Holy Spirit, uh, before I begin, to just um, to come. And I want to just create like a, a silent space right now. If we would just all pause and, and pray silently that God would enter our hearts, that we would see what is already here, that God is here. And so invite the Holy Spirit into your heart, into your minds, into our time. God, even as I uh, pray, I'm reminded of the parable of the soils, where there are so many different types of soils some um, couldn't receive. And the seed just kind of withered away. And, and there was that good soil that was able to hear and receive the seeds, the word that you planted. And so, God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts now, that we would be uh, that good soil. That God invites your presence. And so help us now. To glean uh, whatever it is that your spirit might want us to hear. That God, our lives might become more and more like Jesus. Amen. And so like I've said um, a number of times before I give a message, I, I come as a, a broken, wounded um, person with a lot of blind spots. And I want to share just... Um, some of my, um, my thoughts about God, about Scripture, that I, I know are still forming. I don't believe the things I believed 20 years ago. Um, there are a lot of things I've, I've changed in my, my thoughts. Uh, 
And even as I share, um, I want to hear from you. I want us to have this dialogue. I want to be in process with you. But this is where I'm at in 2022. And, and so um, to begin, I'd like us for a moment to step back in time. I'd like us to imagine ourselves more than 2,000 years ago, a time before the resurrection, a time before any of the Gospels or the New Testament letters were written, a time when all we had was the book of Moses and the prophets. And imagine that instead of us being inside LBCF, we, were, we are inside a Jewish synagogue, and there's a rabbi that comes forward and opens up uh, one of the scrolls, and this time he opens up to the book of Leviticus, and he reads from Leviticus 20, verse 10. And you could tell there's something different about this reading because um, it's slow and, and his voice is, is cracking and there's, like, there's, there's a sense of grief. And he reads, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. And with those simple words, he rolls back the scroll, puts it away, and he looks before all of us and he says, I have some heavy news. It has come to my attention and the leadership that there was among us someone that was caught in adultery. And as people of scripture, as people who desire to be obedient to the words that are written in Leviticus and the law, we invite everyone to begin exiting the doors and the ushers will begin handing out um, stones to apply what we have just read. Because someone was caught in adultery and to be faithful to the scriptures, the scripture tells us that they are to be put to death. And if we know anything about the law, we know that there are no exception clauses when it comes to adultery. There are other infractions where, you know, there is kind of some penitence, there is grace given, but adultery is one of those things that you just don't mess with. And so the rabbi invites everyone outside and everyone is given a stone. And now imagine as you're working your way through the crowd, you begin to wonder who could this person possibly be and you're trying to make your way to the front and to your shock it's one of your own children. What do you do? What do you do? Would you cast the stone? Would you take part in putting to death this person caught in adultery, your own child? Would you, in essence, be faithful to upholding the commandments of Scripture? Or would you choose to try to do anything you can to save the life of your child? Now, this is a difficult and extremely uncomfortable question, isn't it? I mean, I know as a father, I would just, I would drop the stone. I would plead for mercy. I would do anything I can to stop this horrendous event. But the scriptures are clear. What do we do?
Now, these are the kind of things that keep me awake at night. Where when I look at the scriptures and I try to figure out what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean for us to uphold the scriptures, to show our faithfulness and devotion to God, to say that the mind of God is, is greater than, than our thoughts? It, it's stuff that, you know, community of faiths have wrestled with time and time again. But what I find interesting is this almost identical situation was actually played out in the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 8, we find that Jesus is hanging outside the temple courts where all the people were gathered around them in verse 2. And here Jesus was teaching them. And in verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. And right here, they are referencing the passage we just read, right? They are referencing Leviticus chapter 20. And so they asked Jesus, now what do you say? And John tells us they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing them because somehow they knew Jesus would never, never participate in the stoning. But here the religious leaders were trying to see, is Jesus faithful to the law of Moses? Because there's a lot of people following Jesus around right now, right? A lot of people are claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. A lot of people are, are seeing the miracles. And, and the, the religious leaders of that day are trying to figure out, is Jesus indeed the one that we are waiting for? If Jesus is the Messiah, then shouldn't he be upholding our traditions? Shouldn't he especially be upholding the law of Moses? If Jesus came from God, if Jesus is who he says he is, then shouldn't Jesus take the law of Moses and apply it rightfully so? But I think we know the story. Um, Jesus, it says here, bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And at this, everyone was kind of puzzled, and they're like flipping through the scrolls. That's not in there. That's not in Leviticus. What is Jesus saying? If, if that becomes the requirement of how we apply Leviticus, then no one, no one will ever be. It might as well not even be written in the scriptures. If the only people that can actually apply it is the one who has no sin. And one by one, people began to leave, and Jesus is left alone with the woman. And, and Jesus says, I do not condemn you. And he says to her, go and sin no more. Now, the interesting thing about this passage is that Jesus, the Son of God, came incarnated without sin. If there was anyone that had the authority, right, he who was without sin cast the stone. Jesus was without sin. Jesus was the one that could have cast the stone. And if he read the scriptures plainly, he probably should have. 
And yet what we find is that Jesus doesn't. And this apparent disobedience by Jesus to the laws what created animosity towards him among religious leaders. The religious leaders were incensed. They were like trying to figure out who is this Jesus that constantly breaks our traditions? Who is this Jesus that is constantly messing with the law and trying to figure out a different interpretive passage? Jesus is discerning the scriptures in a way that is new, it's different, it's, it's scandalous, it's, it's heretical even. And there was so much, so much, you know, problems with that. And, and I know a lot of people look at this passage and they focus on, you know, what Jesus says in the end, now go and sin no more. But if, if you read scripture, you know that, and study the scriptures, you know that that wasn't the scandalous part of the passage. The scandalous part of the passage with everyone present there, especially the religious community, was that Jesus didn't apply Leviticus chapter 20. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with Jesus? Now, if you look throughout the Gospels, you'll know that this was not an isolated incident. It's just the way Jesus Jesus read and applied scripture. He does it with, you know, people that had skin issues, right? The law says you aren't supposed to touch people with skin diseases, you know? He was hugging lepers. He allowed women who were bleeding, you know, to touch him. He was breaking ceremonial laws. And that aggravated the heck out of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But what really set them off was what he did with Sabbath. And we know from the Ten Commandments in Genesis 20 that the Sabbath says six days, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day a Sabbath you shall not work, not even your animals or your foreigners, because it's embedded in the creation order. God created the world and in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And that's why the Sabbath is so important. If you subvert the Sabbath, you subvert creation. You subvert who God is. The Sabbath was this pillar, right, that was like unshakable. And so there were people walking around making sure you don't break the Sabbath. And Jesus constantly broke it. From the very beginning of Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it says that Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples were walking along. They began to pick some heads of grain. That's work. That's work. You don't pick heads of grain. That's considered labor. And so the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? You're breaking the Ten Commandments, is what they're saying. And Jesus answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? Hmm, it's weird. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, David entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And so Jesus knows that's the law, that the bread is only meant to be eat. The consecrated bread was only meant to be eaten by the priests, and yet David and his men ate it. Why? 
Because it says they were hungry and they were in need. Jesus was saying, was it right for David to eat or not? Was it right for David to break the law? And Jesus says it was good. Why? Because David was hungry. And so he says in verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what Jesus is trying to say is that the Sabbath or the law was never intended to be a weight of burden on humankind. The Sabbath law in its intended focus when it was written was because the people of Israel had just escaped Egypt. They were laboring 24-7. They were, it was this necessary thing for, for God to say to the people of Israel, you guys are working too hard. And you guys are bringing that work ethic into this new place. You got to stop that. I'm going to say, in order for you to live, in order for you to succeed, you need to rest. The Sabbath was intended to give life, to give meaning, to give rest to people. That's the whole reason of Sabbath. But if you take the Sabbath law or any commandments and use it as a way to weaponize the hungry, to make them further be hungry, then you've misunderstood what the Sabbath is about. You've misunderstood what the law and the commandments are about. The word of God was never intended as a weapon. You don't use the word of God to make people hungry. And so therefore, my disciples who are picking grain... Yes, that's work, but they're hungry. They're hungry. The Sabbath, the Word of God, the laws were never intended to hurt people. And so in Mark chapter 3, we find another story just a few verses later. It says, Jesus heals a man with shriveled hand, and he is accused again of doing work on the Sabbath. You don't heal. That's, 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 that's wrong, Jesus. But Jesus replied, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they remain silent. And so Jesus here is upsetting a lot of people. He is overturning thousands of years of tradition. Jesus is imagining for a new generation that what they thought about Sabbath all along was, was harmful. And so there were a lot of people furious. There were a lot of people angry at Jesus. And if you look at the Gospels, you know, you reread the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus doesn't read and apply Scripture the way so many people do today. I grew up as a conservative Baptist pastor. One of my mottos was, Scripture said it, I believe it, that settles it. I was a hardliner with a lot of things. But what I began to realize is that it's, it's not, anybody can read and quote, quote Scripture and just kind of like use it against people and communities and all of that, but but my question now is not so much what the scriptures say. 
But how does Jesus read and apply what Scripture says? Because if we are to live and love like Jesus, then that seems to be what is most important. It's not enough to quote Scripture. Because religious people in Jesus' day were constantly quoting Scripture. But what Jesus was trying to do is he was trying to say, reimagine a way where Scripture it is there, but it was never intended to kill. It was never meant to make people suffer. It was never meant to, to make people get depressed and to go hungry and to stay ill and to stay sick. Jesus kept saying, there's a hermeneutic of compassion that you must apply. This is the way of Jesus. And if we are to be a discerning community, that it's, it, it's, therefore it's important for us to look closely at how Jesus lived his life. And so I'd like to jump a few years, you know, post-resurrection. Jesus has left the scene, right? Physically speaking. And early on, the disciples, you know, in this early church are beginning to have this, this like difficult test. I mean, this was like monumental in the infancy of the church, an incredible theological problem surfaced. And you probably can guess what that is. It was the issue of circumcision. There were some new people coming into the church who were uncircumcised. And that wasn't okay with a lot of the Jewish Christians. Because a lot of the Jewish Christians said, no, you know, we, you have to be circumcised still. And if we can pop the slide of Genesis 17.3. <clears throat> It says, Abraham, you know, this is where circumcision um, began when God made this covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 17, 3, it says that Abraham fell face down. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for generations to come, and this is my commandment with you and your descendants after you, and the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with foreign money from a foreigner and those who are not in your offspring. And so God speaks to Abram and says, this is going to be an eternal covenant, meaning forever. That as the sign of the covenant, every male among you, you know, has to be circumcised. And soon after this, this became the practice of every male Jew. In order to be a faithful person 
of God, in order to be part of the covenant, you had to be circumcised. There is there's nowhere here in, in the Old Testament that ever said circumcision will end. And I often wondered, you know, when Jesus was teaching the disciples, I, you know, I, I would read and study the book of Acts and think, man, this was a mess. The church was so divided over this matter. This was like the, the big hot topic of debate. And I wonder, Jesus, you knew this was going to be an issue. You knew this was going to be a theological problem. Why didn't you ever talk about circumcision? It would have been easy for you to tell the disciples, hey, a few years from now, guess what? No more circumcision. That would have been like, you know, the, the best thing, right? They could have just like went on and say, oh, yeah, great, Gentiles, come in. No need to show yourself anymore. <laughs> you know, just kind of like, uh, you know, come in and be part of the community. No, um, Jesus doesn't do that. And I wonder, Jesus, why? Why did you make it so hard? Because what we find in Acts chapter 10, and this is AD 37. This is a mere, um, Acts chapter 10 is a mere seven years after the resurrection, right? Seven years. And Peter, in verse 44, is, is um, you know, talking, and the Holy Spirit came um, on all the people who were hearing his message, and in verse 45, it says, The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. And this was like, what in the world is going on? Uncircumcised believers were a thing. Who would have ever thought you could be uncircumcised and Christian? But it was there. It was there. What do we do with that? And so Peter says, you know what? They received the Holy Spirit. What can we do? So he ordered them to be baptized. And the baptism represented full inclusion into the body of Christ of uncircumcised believers. Now you got to understand that this is AD, AD 37. The book of Romans or Galatians, you know, talking about circumcision, hadn't even been written yet. There was no theological discourse around the issue of circumcision. This was happening in real time. And so a lot of people began to be furious. And they began to look at Peter and say, Peter, what are you doing? Don't you know that, that circumcision is our identity as followers, as faithful people of the covenant of Abraham? We are Abraham's children. And to do away with circumcision, you have no, no authority to do that. Not even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount ever said anything like this. And you guys are introducing something new, something radical. And in Peter's discernment process, he was like, yeah, I know, but what do we do? It's clear that the Holy Spirit 
is present with these people, what do we do? And the debate raged on. You skip over to Acts chapter 15. This is AD 48 now. This is 11 years after Acts chapter 10. And we have Paul and Barnabas, you know, now introduced into the scene, and they are baptizing uncircumcised Gentiles. They're doing what wasn't permitted, you know. They were like breaking all the rules, and, you know, the church was in this tailspin. People's heads were spinning, <laughs> you know. They were like, why are you guys out of your mind? This is heresy. And so Paul and Barnabas decide to go up to Jerusalem, what is now known as the Jerusalem Council, because it says certain Jewish Christians were demanding that Gentiles must be circumcised. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 4, it says that when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders. Verse 5, and then they said, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. And so these were believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and elders met to consider this question. And it says after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now remember, Peter was part of what happened in Acts chapter 10, right? 11 years later. So Peter saw evidence of the Holy Spirit. So he gets up and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke, a yoke, a bondage that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are saved just as they are. In verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And so now Paul and Barnabas gets up, right? After Peter gives his little, you know, uh, spill. And, and Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They began telling stories. They began sharing signs and wonders about what God is doing in Gentiles. They are pro providing anecdotal stories about, hey, this is what we see. That the Holy Spirit is coming upon the Gentiles. They are speaking in tongues. There's healings. There's the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is our discernment process. And so what do we do with this? In verse 12, it says the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul talking about signs and wonders. And when they finished, James spoke up. And he said, brothers, listen to me. And skipping on in verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God. This was the statement of the Council of Jerusalem. That the early church declared that we will affirm uncircumcised people 
as part of the church. This is not a debatable matter. Even though circumcision had been the teaching of the church for thousands of years. Now how was Peter and James able to make such a declaration? What authority did they have? Now if you remember, Peter and the rest of the apostles were discipled by Jesus himself. And I believe that they were introduced with this new kind of hermeneutic that Jesus presented. It was a hermeneutic of compassion, a hermeneutic that always paid attention to the suffering of people. A hermeneutic that said time and time again, don't ever use the law to bring people down. You got to always interpret the scriptures in a way that gives life. And if you think about what Jesus did and the disciples, here you have the two biggest pillars of what it meant to identify as the people of God, to keep the Sabbath and to be circumcised. Those were two huge pillars. And Jesus and the disciples were reimagining a radical new nature of how to move in a way that kept people on the outside and bring them in. If you look at historical theology, you'll find that the church didn't wrestle with every major, major theology in Acts. You know, if, if you look at the history of the church, you know, the early church dealt with Gnostic heresies, and they were able to develop a more robust Christology. There was the issue of modalism and the doctrine of the Trinity that has to be, had to be hashed out. The problem of Arianism and the deity of Christ. There was the Pelagian controversy and the means of grace. And in more recent years, there was the issue of slavery and women's rights and, you know, biracial marriage and gender and sexuality debates and racism and all of that. And one of the problems of every generation is this. It's the belief that we are the generation that has finally understood the full counsel of Scripture and that our long-standing beliefs no longer have to be challenged. But historical theology shows us that this is not true. We must always have a posture of willing to listen and to be challenged in our assumptions. And I'm confident that God's love and truth will always prevail. Jesus gave us a pattern of how to look at Scripture. He passed it on to the early disciples without giving them the answers. Is circumcision yes or no? He didn't give them the answers. He merely provided them a paradigm of discernment. And he says, you got to look at Scripture, not in a way to oppress, not in a way that kills, not in a way that makes people hungry. you got to always look at the Scriptures in a way that gives life. How does it give life? That is your discernment process. Look at the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Be aware. Look at the room. Pay attention. How is the Holy Spirit moving? Is the evidence of the Holy Spirit present in that person's life? If it is, then I need to, I need to move in that direction and, and pay attention. And I know, you know, a lot of my old friends, you know, or even current friends, think I'm a heretic. 
They say, Danny, you've abandoned scripture. And what I usually tell them is, no, I think I have so much more respect for Jesus than I ever have. Because it isn't about quoting scripture for me anymore and trying to do a theological argument, parse the Hebrew and Greek, and look at the context and read the commentaries to do this like hermeneutic and exegesis of the passage that is avoiding relationship. What Jesus does is he, he doesn't like go through that like hermeneutical, right, theological process. He goes straight. He goes straight and asks the question, is this tree bearing good fruit? He's saying, look at the evidence of fruit. Is it offering life? If it's not offering life, then it's, it's, not, it's not good. Jesus tells us to discern in a relational way that is not just this ivory tower theological construct that is creating theologies without realizing the impact on real people. And so the question I have is this, how does Jesus read and apply scripture? Because that ought to be our discernment process as well. And if, if you've heard me a few times, you'll know that I usually close with like a little story, a conclusion to kind of like land the airplane and say, hey, here's the application for us. I'm not going to do that today. I, I've kind of did like this presentation, right, on discernment. I'm not going to say what you should do with it. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of debates today. Whether it's on prison reform, whether it's on busing immigrants to other states, whether it's on gender and sexuality, a lot of things aren't like spelled out in, clearly in scripture. Jesus didn't intend it for it. What Jesus does though is he gives us a discernment process. And I liken it almost to the way when I was like in first kindergarten, second grade maybe, when I was first learning how to color. And the teacher would just gently say, here, Danny, color within the lines. And it was good, right, in elementary school for me to color within the lines. But when I got to junior high and high school especially, I saw the lines and I began to like, you know, just go past it like any masterful artist would want to do, right? There are rules. There are rules to music, even. There are rules to photography, right? Follow the two-thirds rule or, you know, whatever that is. And then, like, but once you know the rules, it was never meant to constrict you, but for you to grow beyond it. And I liken that as, you know, what Scripture is. Scripture is our school teacher. It's good, it's important, it's necessary. It creates these boundaries for us to begin understanding what wisdom is. But eventually what Jesus does as the masterful painter is he begins to paint with broad lines of grace, broad strokes of love and compassion. And he's just like whipping away and creating this beautiful, this beautiful 
image of who God is. And so I don't want to land the plane for any of us tonight. I'm not going to draw any theological conclusions here. Because I think that's the work of discernment for our church. And I would like all of us to pray. To ask God, help us as a community understand. Because something powerful happened in the book of Acts. Something extraordinary that got a lot of people upset. But it was necessary what they did. It was beautiful. And we are the recipients of that decision. At least most of us are. And so I pray that God would um, help us to take the scriptures with high regard the way Jesus did. The way Jesus said that I, I am the word come in human flesh and let me show you what the word of God looks like in action. And so as we transition into communion, I want us to be in that reflective space. Um, we are here um, every Sunday being invited to participate in the table. So if I can have the worship team come up and if I can have some help bringing the table uh, behind me. Um, Jesus offered this table hoping that everyone would be able to participate. And as we come to this table, um, I ask that we would be mindful of who doesn't feel like they belong. And what does that mean for us? And that we would see that the table is intended to be full of grace, so invitational. That Jesus offered his body for the whole world. The whole world. Everyone is beautiful. Everyone is loved by God. And so when you're ready, come.